Amen. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. All right, if you've got your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Hebrews. Uh, chapter 13. This is the last time that we're going to be in this series. This is the last message of this series. This is if you um, are someone who goes to uh, some type of fast food and you buy fast food and then um, you distribute out the burgers and the fries and everything and all of a sudden at the bottom of the bag, what's at the bottom of the bag? Oh, I know, I know. And then whose fries are those? Dads, that's right. And so when you, that, that's like this, chapter 13 is the fries at the bottom of the bag. This is the, the author of Hebrews saying, look, I've gone through the history. I've gone through, like, I, I'm writing to you, your, your group of people in Rome, your, your group of Christians, but you, didn't, you weren't born Christians. You were born Jewish people and, and just like me. And then all of a sudden, you, you recognize that Jesus was the Messiah and you turned your heart over to him and you turned your life over to him. And that was amazing. But as opposed to what some people believe, it didn't make your life easier. It got harder. And you started getting hate from your friends and family you grew up with that were Jewish. You got hate from the Gentiles that are around you. And basically, you were punched from both sides. And, and that's been kind of the thing that's been causing you to want to jump ship and like bail on, on Jesus and kind of just run back to either your Jewish roots or just bail on the idea of faith altogether because it's just too difficult and too dramatic. And who needs this? And the author of Hebrews is like, you need it. You need Jesus. You need to hold on to Jesus. You need, don't, in the midst of all these things, let me just tell you how everything in our past has been like pushing you closer to him, pointing to him. Everything in our Old Testament scriptures have been pointing to the, to the person and work of Jesus. Don't give up on him. But the reality is that if you follow him, you're going to be an outsider. And so this last chapter is kind of like the, the, the fries at the bottom of the bag where it's just like, I'm just going to tell you like, Five, six things that you need to know, okay? These are five. I'm not, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time developing. I'm just going to I'm going to be dealing with things that our, our church is dealing with here in Rome and that you need to hear about. And so he really, in a quick succession, hits them. In fact, he gets to the end of chapter 13 and he said, you know, in the, everything I just wrote you, I wish I was, I wish I could be less concise. You know, I wish I could just, and, and you're thinking, wait, hold on. You spent 13 chapters writing this note to your friends in this town and you wish that you could you wish that you could have been, you know, have a little bit more space, but he didn't. He took all that space, but he gets to the end, and he really hones in at the end about this idea that he started out with. You're outsiders. If you really follow Jesus, you're going to be a cultural outsider. If you really follow Jesus, you're even going to be a religious outsider. Other people who are following Jesus are going to look at you like a freak if you're actually fleshing out, living out this stuff that Jesus has called at you, that, that if he actually saves you, if he rescued your soul, that, that all of a sudden that, that animates. You're not like earning your salvation, but because you're saved, all of a sudden there's a, this newness of life. And it's amazing because the things that he addresses are so pertinent. I don't know if you've ever heard these statements or statements similar to these, but um, I distance myself from church. I'm spiritual, not religious. Safety is found in, in being sheltered and insulated from the world around me, the hostile world around me. Thoughts and prayers are enough. I love Jesus, but that has nothing to do with my sex life. Um, blessed equals more, and trendy Christianity equals better. But these are the very things that chapter 3, again, he's just like, just like throwing them in there. So let's go ahead and jump on into each one of these statements. Because again, these are just as pertinent, just as like fresh in 2019 as they were when this was first written in the first century. 
the first um, statement that a lot of Christians, and perhaps even you are saying this right now, or you have said this in your past, that I distance myself from church. I, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, Deepak Chopra, he's like a, a new agey kind of philosopher dude. You guys have heard of Deepak? Deepak? All right, so he said this. Religion is belief in someone else's experience. Let me say it again. Religion is belief in someone else's experience. Spirituality is having your own experience, which he follows up by, so buy my book and read about my experience that you can own it yourself. So that religion, that, but that's true. I mean, the idea is, is that, um, look, I, I, we've had it up to here with organized religion. Organized religion is disappointing. Organized religion has men and women who fail us, who disappoint us, who discourage us. Why would I want to be a part of a group of people that are so unlike me? Why would I want to step up and do that each and every week? I mean, this is goofy. I've got, honestly, I've got a stressed out life enough. I've got a busy enough life. I don't need that. I don't need to be pulling all that off. I, but I, I'm not ditching the idea of God. I, I'm not saying I'm an atheist, but I'm just saying this could be cool without this. This is super fine. I'm, I'm all down with this, but I'm just not down with that. To which the author of Hebrews steps in right in the very first verse of chapter 13 and says, that, 13 and says this, keep on loving one another as what? The original, that's the NIV's translation. The original doesn't have brothers and sisters. It has the more generalized word, Philadelphia. And, and Philadelphia, as we know today, Philadelphia in, in America is the city of what? Okay, now that's not just for the dudes, that's for everyone, right? This is like a place where what they're saying is, look, we may not have grown up in the same house, we may not have shared like Thanksgiving meals together, but even so, we're part of the same town and we got each other's back. We're going to go to the wall for each other. Why? Because we're Philadelphia. We are Philadelphians. We're like brothers and sisters. We got a brotherhood about us that even though we're distinct and different, we're united. And that is the word that the author of Hebrews uses to describe what these people are. He's saying to them, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Here's the crazy thing about your family of origin. You can't escape it. You've tried. And if you're like, if you're a teenager right now and you're just like, man, I just can't wait till I'm an adult and I'm going to be doing life so differently than my parents. I'm going to be so different from my mom and my dad. And you might have significant changes. That's great. But guess what? In your 30s and your 40s, weird things starts happening in your brain that starts to make you just like them. <laughs> you can't escape it because they're family. Now, here's the thing about family. With church, like with family, we deal with the people a little bit differently. Like with family, it's like, look, we got to figure out how to work through this because I'm going to see you at Thanksgiving. And I don't, I don't want there to be as much drama as there's been the past several years. I, I, I don't want there to be something that, that we have ongoing like this. And look, if I just worked with you, or if you were just someone down the street, I could write you off. I don't have to see you again. I don't, we don't have a relationship, but I can't because you're my dad or you're my mom or you're my kid. You're, you're my sibling. You're my aunt, my uncle. We, we've, got, we've got a shared history and a shared future. So we got to work through this so we can actually get through. That's what he's saying. So in response to that, that common notion, I distance myself from church. I'm spiritual but not religious. It makes sense until you read the Bible and hear God's understanding and his perspective on what the church is. See, I can't distance myself from church. I am the church. If you're in Christ, you're part of the church. You can't leave yourself. You may have tried. It doesn't work. I am the church. It is as much who I am as the family I come from. And so one of the things the author of Hebrews is saying, you want to keep from falling away from Jesus, stick it out. Be a part of the church. Are they totally annoying and frustrating at times? A lot of the times, yes. 
Are they perfect or do they have like uh, the leadership structure and, and the history that you could say everything about this is awesome? No, but Jesus loves the church. He calls the church his bride. And so that is who we are. The second comment that we hear oftentimes that we live out, maybe, and maybe you've heard this before, but safety is found in being sheltered and insulated from the outside world. Yeah, I grew up as a Christian, as a kid, in the 80s and 90s, and the 80s and 90s was like the heyday for like a, a Christian cultural experience. It's like Christians learned how to play guitar or something in the 70s, I guess, and, and then all of a sudden, like, they're like, wait, we can make music, and we can, actually, we can have stores full of music that's just all about Jesus, and we have books that's all about Jesus, and so what I grew up in was like this opportunity of going, like, I walk in, and everything here is Jesus-branded. I mean, it's all Jesus stuff. It's like music. I don't have to listen to any secular music because all the music is right here. I don't have to read any secular books unless I'm assigned at school because all the books I need to read are right here. I can live actually sheltered because the world is dangerous and hostile. They're strange. And, and that, was, that notion was something that was pervasive until it started to go like, you know what, this just this feels safe. It just doesn't feel Christian. The author of Hebrews in the next verse puts it this way. Do not forget to show hospitality to Christians who share your values. No, do not forget to show hospitality to those who affirm the same doctrines and dogmas that you do within the local church. Do not forget to show hospitality to those who are friendly to Christians, even if they're not. Do not forget to show hospitality to who? And you know what strangers are? Strange. And the thing is that in the old school world, what would happen was this. You would have, um, like, it was a common Greek custom. Like, this is before God invented Motel 6. And so when people are going through town, they got no place to stay. And so, like, I'm hundreds of miles away from home. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. Am I just going to, like, lay on the street? Or if you were in the street and you saw a stranger, a foreigner coming through town, what you would do is say, hey, we got a, we got a, a, a bed. We can give you our kid's bed. Our kid can sleep in our room, and we'll feed you for the night. And that was, like a non-Christian Greek custom. So non-Christians were like, yeah, we're just being hospitable. As soon as Christianity emerges and all of a sudden we're like enemy number one, enemy from the, the Jewish family and friends that we grew up with and enemy number one from the Greeks that we're down the street from. If it said, do not forget to show hospitality to Christians that are from out of town, that would make sense. Because again, we are the persecuted ones. We're not gonna be like opening ourselves up for attack. But he doesn't say that. He says, do not forget to show hospitality to who? Strangers. These are people who are going to disagree with you. These are people who are, are going to be culturally, ethically, religiously different, experientially different. And yet he doesn't qualify it with Christians. He just says, strangers, people from out of town you don't know, show hospitality to them. Why? For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now that's a cool perk. But what if we actually lived that way? Like, what if we actually engaged people with the dignity that this person could be a messenger from God? And you're like, yeah, I don't think so. Not with that t-shirt. But what if? Like, what if we actually elevated the dignity of people we don't know to that level and treated them like that? What kind of humans would we be if we did that? Because that's what Scripture's calling us to do. People we have no connection to, no incentive for, for blessing for showing hospitality to, that's what we're supposed to be hospi hospitable towards. So that idea of safety is found and being sheltered and insulating from the outside world, yes, that's true. But as a Christ follower, my calling is to express care for and to a hostile world. Not a safe world, not a Jesus-friendly world, a hostile world, if we're going to take this passage seriously. Amen? Okay, careful on the amens because we're going to get to some tough stuff here. Thoughts and prayers.
Okay, whenever there's a tragedy, a gun tragedy, a mass shooting at a school or something like that, everyone, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist, we, we, we have this knee-jerk reaction that I know what I need to say. I know what I need to post. Because this is going to say it all. Thoughts and prayers. Right? And so the world initially was like, oh, that's adorable. That's wonderful. I don't believe in God, but I appreciate that you're praying for me and, you're, and, and that you're thinking about me. That's wonderful. And, but when you have enough tragedies transpire, all of a sudden, People get a little sick of thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And the world, a lot of whom are not believers, are responding with, I need more than that. That is not enough. You thinking and praying is doing nothing to deal with an issue. Don't give me thoughts and prayers. And, and, and honestly, the author of Hebrews is agreeing with them. He says this in verse 3, continue to remember those in prison. Now that word for remember, that sounds like that would affirm the idea of thoughts and prayers. Because like, a bad thing happened, I'm going to remember it. I'm going to remember it long enough for me to post about it. And then I'm going to get on with my day. But it doesn't just talk about remembering like that. That word right there is this word in Greek. It's mimneskomai, which means to like be so remembering it that you're not forgetting. You're thinking about it constantly. And you're thinking about it constantly because you're not just thinking about it. You're actually owning it. You're owning the issue personally. So continue to remember those in prison. And listen to how he qualifies this. As if you were together with them in prison. So don't just think about, oh man, that's terrible. That's such a tragic situation. I'm so glad I live where I live. Oh, that's so horrible. I can't imagine, I can't possibly relate to that. I wonder what's happening on The Bachelor tonight. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. One person put it this way. Pretend as if every time someone gets unjustly punched, you're taking that bruise on your cheek, that you're owning it like that. And so the notion that thoughts and prayers are enough is not a biblical statement. Not because praying and bringing something before God, a sovereign God who can do anything and everything, is a waste of time. The reason that this is unbiblical is because our thoughts are too brief and our prayers are too weak. We are, we are like just a glimpse of a thought and a prayer. Sometimes when we tell each other we're going to pray for each other, if someone says something, we think about it, we pray about it, and we move on. That is human. It's just not biblical. The biblical picture is that mimneskomai, the idea of owning it personally. And so our response is this. Christians are called to actively bring requests before God and act actively be his ambassadors to the problem at hand. It's praying and stepping in, owning it, thinking about it. Let me give you an example. Um, Samaritan's Purse is an organization owned, or not owned, but operated by Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's kid. Awesome guy. Got, got, he's done some amazing things in his life and in his ministry. And one of the things that he focuses in on is helping the plight of refugees. On his website, it says this. These desperate people need Jesus. In the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, Samaritan's Purse is ministering to people who are fleeing poverty, violence, and terror. And then he qualifies that by saying, Jesus' family once left their home to escape violence. Today, millions are fleeing war and terror in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Samaritan's Purse is there providing physical and spiritual relief. To which all of us should say, thank God for Franklin Graham for what he's doing. But some Christians, not me, but some Christians were like thinking, that's interesting. Today, millions are fleeing war and terror in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. That's true. But there's some noticeable places that he's left off. Like, like people that are escaping violence and terror in South and Central America that are coming across our borders. 
Everyone got really nervous. Coming across our borders. And all of a sudden, this is like something. And, and again, um, um, this Christian artist, her name is Nicole Nordman. I listened to a CD of hers back in the 90s, and I totally forgot she was still making music. But apparently she is. And she tweeted at Franklin Graham, and she said this. Hey, Franklin Graham, every Christmas you speak so convincingly about your heart for innocent children, the least of these, which is why I knew you'd be floored to learn about a place so desperately, that so desperately needs some of those shoe boxes, all hand deliver. One of the things that, that Samaritan's Purse does is they come up with this Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes that, that's, that actually come up with Christmas presents and some physical needs that the kids have in all these countries where there's refugees. And it gives them a Christmas present, which is super cool. And so Nicole Nordman's like, awesome, I'm all about that. But what if we did that on our southern border where we have refugees coming across the line? Dum, dum, dum. Why is this political? Why is this dramatic? Because Franklin Graham is super tight with President Donald Trump. And President Donald Trump had recently, in that point, made some statements about the southern border, giving some type of an indication that he wasn't a fan of some of, or at least not aware or whatever, of, of some of the conditions. She tacked on to the, the tweet um, this uh, New York Times article about the stench of soiled clothes and no baths for migrant children and the children that are separated from their parents for weeks and weeks on end and things of that nature. So what's Franklin Graham going to do? Franklin Graham, again, buddy with President Donald Trump, if he does something that's coming in and saying the conditions that these children are in are not humane and we should be doing something or we should be looking at these refugees similar to the way we look at refugees from Africa and Asia and other parts of this world, that might look like an affront to his friend. It might look like a political move or at least, honestly, it's, he's handling a political hand grenade, which it is. I don't know why it is, but it is. So what's Franklin Graham going to do? This is what Franklin Graham did. Samaritan's Purse responds to the U.S.-Mexico border crisis, and he opens up ways that we can actually go down. And, and the same services that were provided for other countries for refugees were now going to be given to the kids. And I was so proud of Franklin Graham at that point. I was like, dude, a lot of people could have looked the other way or just said, nope, not going to do it. This is going to give me so much hate and flack from people that um, are supporting me and supporting our ministry. But he did it. I was like, so, that was so cool. So Nicole Norman, she, she tweeted back at him. Thank you, Franklin Graham. We might not agree on much politically, but we love the same Jesus who calls us to alleviate suffering whenever and however we can. I look forward to hearing from and joining your team to love and serve our human family at our southern border. Amen? Okay, that's cool. That's, that's, that's like... Franklin Graham and Nicole Norman, Christians, actually, hey, look, we don't, we don't vote for the same people, we don't agree, but listen, when we're called to Mimneskamai people to remember, it, what we're doing is this, we're not simply saying, you know what, those people came across the border illegally, that's their deal, they put their kids in harm's way, tough, that's not our problem, and there's so much, there's no way that we could possibly deal with this, all of that may be accurate, but that's not what Scripture's calling us to do. Scripture's not calling us to come up with a solution for the border problem. What it says is to remember those in prison as if you were there with them. So what this looks like is differently is this. I may vote one way. I may be even supportive of something. But I look at that situation and I say, okay, I'm going to put myself in those shoes. And that means if I was going into another country, and if I went through that country without the right roles and rules that applied for getting into that country, and all of a sudden I'm detained. But not just me, but my son Cohen. My eight-year-old son Cohen and I are now detained in different places. Am I okay in a foreign jail for my son to be in conditions where he doesn't have a bed, where he's defecating in, in areas that are not toilets, and we're separated for weeks on end? Am I okay with that? Am I okay with that? Would you be okay with that for me? 
regardless of your political stripes, you might say, hey, something needs to be done there. That's what scripture is calling us to do, is to say, we put a lot of filters on judgment calls, on how I'm going to make a decision. And instead, we need to set some of those aside and say instead, how can I empathize with that situation without making a judgment call on the person, but simply empathize with the situation as if it were me? And all of a sudden, we step into that. Now, if, I've, if I haven't offended you already, just hold on. <laughs> I love Jesus, but that has nothing to do with my sex life. It's because, I mean, you can like, the author of Hebrews is like, oh, you're, you're conservative stripes? Boom. And then like all the progressives are like, booyah, you got him. And then all he's like, oh, progressives, boom. Because all of a sudden he comes over here and deals with like sexual ethics. And this is something that's very easy for all of us to believe. I, I love Jesus, but it has nothing to do with my sex life. Um, I, I, I'm, the idea, a lot of what scripture says about sex and everything is just adorable, but it's ancient. It's just antiqu- It's not like 2019. This is goofy. You know, that, to, to actually like think that you're going to flesh that out today. No one does that. Christians don't do that. I can love Jesus, and that has nothing to do with my sex life. And the author of Hebrews in the verse 4, he says this, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed, and marriage bed is a euphemism for, for mar- marital sex, and the marriage bed can be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexual immoral. Now, he's not talking to people who are like, good, yeah, because that's none of us. He's talking to people who are like, oh, wait, really? For real? Because in the Greek world, there was a couple of things that were common. Two ways of looking at sex. One was, listen, if I'm a, a, a married man, part of the deal is I get married to said lady, and I'm expected to take a mistress on the side. She's my confidant. She's probably my primary um, sexual partner between the two. This lady, she helps me have kids. This lady helps me have fun. That was the perspective, and that was common. That was the Everyone, it's like, that's not weird. That's just, that is. The other side of the, the aisle was this. Um, actually, I'm, a, I'm an aesthetic, ascetic. And as an ascetic, I am someone who believes that I'm such a strong man. I'm married. I've been married for 15 years. But I'm such a strong man that I abstain completely from any type of sexual activity with my wife. Why? Because I'm that strong. You can't do that, but I could because I am me. And that was the two things. And scripture was like, you see in Paul's writings dealing with this world that has these two views, it's like, Neither one of those is biblical. Neither one of those is, is, is a picture of God's, God's perspective and design for sex at all. Like, it's so much better than what you guys are making this out to be. He says this in verse 4. Uh, he says that in verse 4, and then um, the, the word right there at the end, and this, um, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual immoral. That word for sexual immoral is uh, pornos. It's a word that we get pornography from. And, it's, and basically, it's, it's not just talking about adultery. It's talking about um, any type of sexual experience outside of the covenant of marriage. So if, if any type of sexual encounter um, that, that's with someone, if you're married, someone outside of your marriage, if you're not married with someone who you're not married to, with yourself, pornos. Pornos is basically this. And the reason that, and, and again, you look at that and go, man, that is so crazy prudish. Who does that? The reason that it's, it's called into action is this, because a Christian looks and says, right from the get-go, my life is not my own. My body's not my own. So when I look at, I love Jesus, but that has nothing to do with my sex life, I get that. I, that's, I, I'm prone towards that. However, my response is that I'm going to trust my deepest drives and passions to my designer and check those that drive me away from his design for me. Now, this is like your story right now. You're currently in the, in the midst of this, and you've crossed lines that you wish you hadn't. Man, this is what grace is all about. 
Grace is new beginnings, man. This is, this is where every day gets a new start. If you look back on your own history, like, man, I, I made so many decisions that were so normative and natural, but they were away from God. Join the crowd. But the gospel is that we have a fresh start. Because what the gospel says is this, and we'll use something outside of sexual because some of you are looking comfortable, uncomfortable. Um, let's just say that I deal with anger issues. Some of you have slight anger issues. And let's say that your anger issues makes you want to cause violence to somebody, okay? Like, like seriously, my anger issues makes me want to just straight punch a guy in the face. I want to take his face off. Maybe do worse. And so like all of a sudden, I'm thinking about what God's called me to do and the fact that I want to cause violence against this dude. Does God want me to cause violence against this dude's face? No. Would it feel good? Oh, yes. So good. Does he deserve it? Yeah. Uh, would, I, would I put my head on my bed at night and go, you done good? Probably. Yeah, I probably would. But just because this is normal, I didn't choose to feel angry at him. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not like, I didn't conjure up angry feelings in me. I was born this way, man. This is natural and normative to me. However, I check anything that's away from God's design for me any desire, I check it with him. And the Christian life is not simply saying, I'm going to just do what feels normative and natural and feels good. Because if I do that, I'm punching every person that ticks me off in the face. And I'm causing damage and destruction. And what we do in anger and violence, oftentimes we do in love, but we cause an equal amount of disaster and distance between us and God. Because again, we're taking our life into our own hands and not living out a life that's surrendered. Any type of surrendered life is difficult in following him, but I, I'm going to trust my deepest drives and passions to my designer and check those that drive me away from his design for me. And folks, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, it's not. It's not too late. I remember thinking, because like, this was my life up before I got married. I remember thinking, man, just get to the finish line of getting married, man. Then all of a sudden, all your temptation goes away. Like you're never going to struggle with sexual sin again. That was the biggest joke. It's like, this is it for everyone. This was not written to junior hires and high schoolers. This is written to everybody, every human being. This is our struggle. If you've been married for 50 years, this is still your struggle to follow God with all of your heart and check every one of your drives. And if you're not married, man, get started now because you have the rest of your life to live out the fruit of your decisions or the difficulties of them. Start today. Uh, another thing that, that is a statement that we see in this passage addressing is that whole idea of blessed equals more. And this is, there's, all, there's theologies that wrap themselves around this. And again, as Christians, oftentimes we, we buy into this. Like something good happens to us, we, we post about it, hashtag blessed. You, you, you got a, a new boat, hashtag blessed. Your kids are crazy smart, hashtag blessed. They're smarter than yours, hashtag blessed. <laughs> My kid got to, into the school that he wanted to go and he didn't have to pay anything because we're so crazy smart, hashtag blessed. It's not our story, but just, I'm pretending. Okay. <laughs> Hashtag blessed, and the whole idea of blessed equals more is this idea that the Christian life is victorious, and God wants you to have more and more and better and better, and if you don't, maybe you're doing something wrong, maybe you're not giving enough in the offering, or maybe you're not like praying with enough faith, because what God wants you to have is the best life lived that you can possibly live, and we all know what that looks like, more, until we read the Bible, and the Bible, it says this in the very next verse, keep your lives free from the love of money. Now, that, that's, that's a description of this drive that more equals I've got a bigger identifier on my life of value. Side note, oddly enough, in the, maybe oddly enough, in the New Testament, oftentimes when you hear sexual immorality being talked about, what follows up or precedes it is a discussion about greed for material things because they come from the same source. 
what I have right now is not enough. If I had her, I'd feel valuable. If I had him, I'd feel complete. If I had that, if I had that, I'd feel like I'm finally accomplished. I'm I'm not where I grew up. I did better for myself. All those people that put me down over those years and called me such a loser would be so wrong if I had that. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What he's communicating is this. That whole notion of blessed equals more is totally garbage. It's totally false. How do you know? Because the people who have more than you still want more. The Christian's response is like, no, blessed equals God is with us. That means this. And this is so cool because Paul talks about this in Philippians 4. He's like, look, I know what it's like to have nada, nothing. Like I, didn't ha- I could just barely scrape and buy. And I know what it's like to have tons. And here's the thing. A lot of people get defined and identified by this. I've got nothing. I've got everything, but I need more. And I've learned the secret of being happy in both ways because you're going to find miserable poor people and miserable rich people. Here's the secret to being happy and content in the other situation that I can go through any one of these. I can write either one of these out if Jesus is at the center of my life. He's my identifier, not my poverty and not my wealth. If Jesus is the center of my life, I can be grateful and joyful even though I don't have. And I could be rich without it being actually defining me and, and coking up my brain to making me think that that's who I am and, and I'm, I'm valuable because I have all this stuff. No, blessed is this. I don't have. Hashtag Blessed. We lost the house. Hashtag blessed. I didn't get the promotion. I didn't get into the college I wanted to go to. Hashtag blessed. Why? Because these are good things? No, these are bad things. But they don't destroy me. Why? Because blessed is God is with us. God is with me, even here. And we go through life like that, free from the love of of being driven by by money, and you're going to find yourself content whether your paycheck is epic or it's not. Last thing he deals with here is trendy Christianity, um, the notion that trendy Christianity is better. uh, Jesus dies on the cross, he rises from the grave, and the gospel goes out, and people receive it, and the world starts to get transformed. They start telling people and telling people. And it didn't take long before people were like, you know what, that's an awesome story, I love that. But what if we tweak it just a little bit? Like, I know that salvation is free, but what if you kind of have to work for it still? Or I know that Jesus is amazing, but what if like he's not really God? What if that's just like a figurative thing? And so Christianity started getting trendy where like there was a new trend of a new thought. And the author, not just this author, but all the authors of the New Testament eventually deal with that. Listen to what he says. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now really quick, he's not talking about your pastor here or your Sunday school teacher or your small group leader. He's not talking about that. In fact, in another part, and later on in, in chapter 13, he does talk about pastors and like, he just talked about our relationship with them, but that's not who he's talking about here. Your leaders, he uses a reflexive clause, which means this. He's saying, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. He's talking about people who planted the seed of, of what God is all about, the gospel of who he is in you, and they're dead now. They're gone. Think about those people and look at their example. Why? I love to paint. And, and most of the paintings I do are for people that say, I would like you to paint this person. They meant, meant a lot to me or this, this person over here. I try to sway people away from having me paint someone who's still alive. I like painting dead people. <laughs> Which sounds disturbing. 
But the reason I like painting, not like dead, like, oh, there's, no, but people who've already died. The reason I like painting people who've already died is because of the fact that those people, their legacy is locked. You know their ups and downs. What I don't like a situation of spending a lot of time on this, on this painting, four foot by four foot painting. I'm painting it. I'm trying to put all my heart into it. And then I give it to the customer and they get it. Like, oh, this is amazing. We're going to put this in our living room. They put it in their living room. And then all of a sudden the news comes out that Bill Cosby did all these things. And so all of a sudden the Bill Cosby painting doesn't seem like it should be sitting in the living room, right? Take it to the garage. Why? Because there's something about a non-locked legacy that's still open for failure that could disqualify. The author of Hebrews is saying, look to the people who've held tight to Jesus, who stayed with Jesus through the thick and thin, who didn't give up on their faith and died. Now, they had ups and they had downs in their faith, but you know them, their legacy is locked. Look to those people. Imitate their example. Just a couple chapters before, he talks, and Pastor Eric talked about this in chapter 11. Those people did not leave, live seamless lives, but they had a chance to lock in their legacy. And the thing that they were known for was that. They weren't disqualified. This is something that he's calling us to do, to look at these types of people. And then to realize this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So trendy Christianity, this thing that's constantly evolving, that's goofy. Don't do that. Keep coming back and checking things with God's word. Realize that true Christianity is better. How do we know what's truth? How do I know if, if what I'm believing is accurate? Like, I wish that there was a way that we could just know for sure, for sure. Which, of course, brings us to Finlay. You guys know Finlay, right? Finlay, this is Finlay. Finlay was a guy who lived in the 1800s. He spent the first 35 years of his life learning how to paint people. He went to Yale. He, went, he studied in London. And he, and he studied uh, like how, to, how to form like sh- uh, shadow and, and capture something so it looks authentic. Finlay was all about that. He was getting better and better and better to the point that all of a sudden a courier comes to his door. And he's living there with his wife. And she's pregnant um, with her third kid. They've got two little boys. And, and, and they're excited because the courier says, hey, we are giving you an invitation. The Marquis de Lafayette. The Revolutionary War hero, he's going to be in Washington, D.C. celebrating the 50-year anniversary of the Revolutionary War starting, and they want you to paint him. And Finlay is like, everything I've been living for up to this point has come to this point. So he packs his bag, he hugs his kids, he kisses his wife, and he begins the long journey out to uh, New York and then D.C. And while in the apartment, getting ready for the next day to where he's going to have the first sitting of the Marquis de Lafayette to paint him, a breathless courier who had been riding hard to get to him gives him a note that says, your wife is sick, but she's getting better. He drops everything, and he cooks his tail right on back, all the way to six days of travel, hard travel back, and he gets home, and he realizes that his wife is dead. In fact, she had died when that courier was on his way over to give him the note. Not only was she dead, she was already buried. They had buried her while Finlay was on his way back. And it ruined him. And he said, no one ever should feel this way ever again. I wish there was a way that you could collapse the distance of communication so that messages could be sent so much faster. And he spent the next 45 years of his life dedicating to figure out a way to collapse time and space. Finlay was what his friends and his family would call him, but it was just his middle name. His full name was Samuel Finlay Morse. And what he invented was the Morse code. 
so that you could collapse distance and space so that messages could be communicated because there's certain things that are so dire they need to be known now. This is why what the author of Hebrews is doing is so amazing because at the end of, the chap- of chapter 13, he says, you want to know how we could do all this? See, the thing is, is that um, the priests would go outside the, the, the city walls and they would sacrifice the animal and then bring the animal back into the, the city. But our Savior, Jesus, that's God who closed the gap of the distance between God and man that was caused by our sin and he broke that distance by coming to earth and he died outside the city gates. You and me, let's go join him out there. He died for us, let's live for him. And, and he didn't just die for us. The amazing thing about what Jesus did was this. We see in, in the Godhead, we see that God not only just did the, the action that gave us redemption, but he inspired the words that are still to this day in 2019 closing the gap, the distance of space and time, so that you and I know exactly what he's calling us to do. And the question is, will we have the courage to do it? Do you have the courage to follow his lead and step into the plan that he's calling you into because you can do that today. I don't care what you've done up to this point. The gospel is this, Jesus saves. And he's brought that redemption to you right now. The second to last chapter in this book is what we're gonna end with as a benediction. If you could stand, and we're gonna read this together. This is the hope that the author of Hebrews is giving to a group of outsiders, culturally and religiously, who are choosing to follow Jesus. Let's read this together. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go live that, live that out. God be with you. See you next week.